0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Concierge, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concierge. I'm Dr. Narjos Flores. Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School, I will be your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Today, we'll be discussing climate change and its impact in lung cancer incidence, diagnosis, and in general, in the health of our patients. We are honored to have two amazing guests with us today. Dr. Roselle De Guzman, who is a medical oncologist and professor at the Manila Central University in the Philippines and the Chair of Asia Pacific Regional Council. Dr. De Guzman has written about the global cancer burden and that we have focused on the vulnerability of Asian population. Welcome, Dr. De Guzman.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: In addition, we are also fortunate to have Dr. Christine Berg, the former chief of early detection research group at the Division of Cancer Prevention of Cancer Institute. In this position, she was project officer for the prostate, lung, colorectal and ovarian cancer screening trial and the national lung screening trial. She's currently working on Activities focus on adaptation and mitigate the public health effects of the climate crisis. She serves on the Board of Public Employees for Environmental Responsibilities and is a member of the Climate Victory Council of the League of Conservation Voters and Volunteers for the Sierra Club. Welcome, Dr. Berg.
2: Thank you so much for that warm introduction. I am so pleased to be invited to this very important ISLAC podcast, and I am thrilled that there are so many listeners to these podcasts now, and I look forward to helping inform them so that we can better uh, address the climate crisis to help our patients.
0: Thank you, Dr. Berg. And Dr. Berg and I are colleagues, and we by first name moving forward. Before we start, I think it's important to define to our audience, what is climate change? Dr. Bird, could you define for us climate change?
2: Our planet is warmed by our surrounding atmosphere, and for the last 10,000 years, we've had a very stable climate, allowing the flourishing of human society our use of fossil fuels has allowed us through the industrial revolution to substantially improve our quality of life however those fossil fuels go up into our atmosphere and they include gases such as methane carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide those add to the gases already in the atmosphere and the infrared radiation from the sun interacts with those molecules, they vibrate and generate heat. So we get warming of the atmosphere, which then uh, increases the ability of the atmosphere to contain water. And so we have, that's what climate change is, is the changing of our atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels, leading to many effects, which include flooding, wildfires, increased natural disasters like hurricanes and drought.
0: Thank you, Dr. Berg. I think ISLC understands the importance and the consequences of climate change, and that's why we're bringing this issue to the forefront. As we continue to talk about climate change, um, Roselle, is there a correlation between climate change and lung cancer? And is there an issue related to increased incidence and the number of patients being diagnosed with lung cancer?
1: Changes to the Earth's climate definitely affect human health and specifically cancer through multiple indirect ways. Research has tied increased risks from carcinogens to climate-related sources. And one source of increased carcinogen exposure is natural disasters and extreme weather events that are elicited by climate change. For example, climate change has caused severe wildfires that have been longer, larger, more frequent than previous wildfires. And during the burning of a wildfire, large amounts of pollutants are released, including airborne hazardous particles called particulate matter. And this particulate matter does not remain in the area of the wildfire where it was released, but instead travels great distances through wind patterns, sometimes staying in the air for months. And this particulate matter has been linked to lung cancer incidents in numerous studies. And we have compelling evidence linking air pollution exposure with lung cancer incidents and mortality with more than 300,000 lung cancer deaths globally linked to exposure to outdoor air pollution. According to the late-breaking data presented at SMO Congress the increasing exposure to particulate matter, what we call PM2.5, increases the risk of non-small cell lung cancer in non-smoking individuals with EGFR mutations. And a pathway from air pollution to lung cancer in non-smokers has been identified through influx of macrophages and increasing inflammatory uh, mediator interleukines that's promoting carcinogenesis. And imagine that approximately half of non-smokers with lung cancer have eGFR mutations in their cancer cells. Also, unforeseen heavy rain can lead to flooding, and flooding can aid in releasing possible cancer-causing chemicals into the environment. This occurs when groundwater is contaminated and then washes over industrial sites. Researchers have also documented many other indicators consistent with a warming world. We are seeing declining sea ice and snow cover, melting glaciers and ice sheets, permafrost covering large regions of the Earth are towing, and this towing of the permafrost caused by climate change is going to increase radon levels. And we know that radon, constant exposure to the gas or to more concentrated quantities of radon gas is a risk factor for lung cancer. So it is predicted that if temperatures in the Arctic continue increasing at the pace they have up until now by the end of the century, about 2.5 million square miles of permafrost will melt. And that is 40% of the world's total permafrost, according to estimates by researchers. And so we fear that more lung cancer as will be uh, will be developed as radon is released from towing permafrost.
0: Thank you, Rosel. This is such a comprehensive answer, and it shows that Climate change affects us in so many levels. Um, I think the general population think that it's only one thing, right? The temperature, but we can see that goes through water release or This It's truly really fascinating and I hope our listeners continue to learn during our conversation. Continue to see an increase in climate change and the effects of global warming and our health. Dr. Guzman and Berg, what motivate you to get involved in climate change research and
2: advocacy, Christine. It's clearly an important issue for all of humanity. You can look at the flooding in Pakistan and it's displaced 33 million people. I feel a, you know, I went into oncology because I wanted to help alleviate human suffering. Human suffering is getting worse because of climate change. And given the ties of climate change to lung cancer, which is my area of expertise, Dr. Guzman just did a marvelous job elucidating all of the ties. I felt that my voice and my skill set with the lung cancer risk assessment and screening could be brought to bear on this problem of air pollution and climate change and to help improve our lives, and very importantly, the lives of future generations, my children and future grandchildren and many others uh, around the planet.
1: Thank you, Christine. Rosal? Yeah, well, the Philippines, the country where I live, is one of the world's most disaster prone countries because it sits within the Pacific ring of fire located along the boundary of major tectonic plates and at the center of a typhoon belt. Its islands are regularly impacted by floods, typhoons, landslides, earthquakes, volcano eruptions, and droughts. And the fact that the Philippines ranks among the top countries in the world for population exposure and vulnerability to hazards. I have experienced the devastating effects of climate change firsthand. In 2009... Uh, typhoon Katsana, which is one of the strongest tropical storms that hit the Philippines at the time and not only the Philippines, it also affected Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, China, part of China. the devastating effects I have witnessed. And in the aftermath of the typhoon, I have seen among my patients how that impacted the cancer care their access to treatments, access to radiotherapy. So you can imagine how difficult it is as an oncologist, wherein the responders or even the government, the support is being given to the acute impacts of typhoon, mainly physical injuries, infection, the concern for sanitation and Uh, reliable water supply. But behind that, we do not see really what is the impact on patients with cancer. And another thing in 2013, also another devastating typhoon that hit the Philippines, Typhoon Haiyan, which claimed about uh, 6,000 deaths, Uh, that really had a great impact on what we're seeing firsthand.
0: Thank you so much to the two of you for Everything you do and for putting your passion, your time in this very important subject. Christine, you are the senior author in an article in the journal Oncology Practice explaining which is should care about climate change. Can you share with us the top three reasons why oncologists should care about this global E?
2: Roselle has done an excellent job explaining care disruption, which I think is. One of the top reasons um, oncologists should be aware of the effects of climate change. For example, in Houston, the flooding after Hurricane Harvey disrupted care, and those patients who could not get to radiation therapy had lower survival. Interestingly, MD Anderson Hospital, after an earlier hurricane, I think it was Allison, decided to... Become pretty much floodproof on their lower levels. They moved all the d- generators up, they put in floodgates, they uh, put in uh, disaster management training and drills. All healthcare systems um, that are susceptible to flooding and hurricanes and wildfires and tornadoes need to strengthen their resilience so that there is less care disruption of uh, during these uh, natural disasters. A second issue is um, the more chronic effects, such as heat domes. Our patients who are getting chemotherapy or radiation are already very susceptible to uh, heat. You get more exhausted. Women on tamoxifen have bad heat intolerance. And if you don't have air conditioning and it's 110 outside, you're going to have real problems. Uh, Infectious diseases are more common, such as Lyme disease. And if you're on chemotherapy or radiation, you don't have the um, immune system to respond to these. So you need to be uh, very cautious. The other issue, as Roselle also brought up, is these natural disasters worsened by climate change spew more carcinogens into the atmosphere. The particulates from wildfires are not just the trees that are burning, but the cars, the insulation in houses. That particulate matter can be uh, very harmful. And flooding leaches uh, carcinogenic chemicals from. Those big industrial complexes down along the Gulf Gulf Coast, and that's going to have a, a deleterious effect both on our current patients, but also um, very importantly, could in- increase uh, risks for cancer in the currently healthy populations. And we do want, just like we try to encourage people not to smoke, we don't want to bring our healthy population in, exposed into, you know, toxic compounds. Thank
0: you, Christine. I think the two of you provided more than three. We all need to care about this issue, be involved with this issue, and discuss it with our patients. And um, as we talk, climate is associated with natural disasters. In the last two decades, the number of natural disasters like hurricanes, tsunamis, flooding have increased affecting people in all aspects of their life. Rosal, can you share with our listeners or two of these, these related? How is climate change and natural disasters related?
1: So when the destructive human activities such as what Christine has shared earlier, the burning of fossil fuels, cutting down forests, and the use of modern transportation excessively, this accumulated impact of human life in our planet over the past several decades result in the constant increase in greenhouse gas production, mainly carbon dioxide. And the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere traps the infrared radiation which is supposed to be emitted from the surface of the Earth. And that causes continual increase in the global surface and ocean temperatures, producing global warming, and that turns to drastic changes in our climate, and that accompanying this with an increase in the frequency and intensity of droughts, heat waves, and just to add to what Christine has uh, discussed, not only do these natural disasters and climate change impact our patients with Lung cancer, but also it also impacts uh, cardiovascular conditions, pulmonary conditions, allergies, even the mental health of people which are who are exposed to climate change and natural disasters.
0: Thank you so much. As a person that have seen the consequences of natural disasters and the impact on our patients with cancer, let's all remember. Uh, the challenges of providing care uh, during Maria in Puerto Rico. How many patients with cancer do you not know have access to care for months, and the consequences that come from that? I think it's important to our listeners understand that is all that climate change is not only one thing in a corner that we should forget about it, and that we won't be alive when the consequences come because the consequences are here in all of us. Christine, where are some of the areas in the United States that are at most risk about the long-lasting consequences of climate change?
2: All areas in the United States are at risk. Each region has a different uh, pattern of risk. And in the Northeast, here where I live, we're seeing increasing rain, increasing flooding. A woman um, was trapped in an apartment building due to a flood and her son went in thinking she was still trapped and he died in the flood. I mean, this is is really, really tragic. In the Houston area and Hurricane Belt, We've discussed in detail the issues related to the destruction and care disruption from hurricanes. But in the US, we also have a tornado alley. We have a lot of devastating uh, tornadoes that are worsening uh, throughout the central region of the United States. One hospital in Joplin, Missouri, had the panels uh, for architectural design panels on the walls of the hospital blow off and break through the windows into patients' rooms. ICU beds were covered with uh, shattered glass. So it's disrupt, and uh, so disruption is everywhere. We have the drought in the Southwest, um, leading to water. Uh, Crises, increased valley fever, uh, cryptococcus spreads more because of the drought and the increase in uh, dust storms. One thing, we have this wonderful breadbasket in the United States. We feed ourselves and much of the world with the agricultural products in the um, central U.S., the Central Valley in California provides a lot of fruit and vegetables. And those Um, that crop production is at risk from drought and from flooding, depending on the areas, climate change and increasing heat and changes in CO2 concentration affects the nutritional content of the food that's being produced, the wheat, etc. And so that in addition to lower crop yields, lower nutritional value of our food, affects all of us, and the U.S. exports a lot of food to other countries. And so this kind of impact can be felt in many, many areas. So each region of the U.S. has different effects also, I should mention, we're going to have to retreat from many of our coasts due to uh, inundation from a sea level rise. And that is going to affect many of our healthcare systems you know, in Miami in Houston and New Orleans. How are we going to have a managed retreat? It's going to be expensive. Where should we reinforce to um, keep these health systems where they are, and where should we consider building new ones? These are complex questions that we are going to have to deal with.
0: Thank you, Christine. Um, I think you bring an important point: is that no area of the United States is safe or sheltered for the consequences of climate change, and from the coast to the Midwest to, the West, and when you and I leave. So, Roselle. What are the areas of immediate risk to the consequences of climate change?
1: Well, definitely those people who are living in coastlines and low-lying areas are definitely susceptible to the climate change and extreme weather events. Asia-Pacific is a huge region with about 2.4 billion people live in low-lying coastal areas. And being the most disaster prone region in the world, having extensive coastlines and many small island states, the geography of Asia Pacific makes it highly susceptible to rising sea levels and weather extremes. Heat waves, floods, droughts affect every aspect of life from nutrition and health to safety and income. And being home to 60% of the world's population Indeed, the region is one of the most vulnerable areas to the climate crisis. Well, this is compounded by the problem in rapid urbanization and the pace of development often overtaking proper infrastructure planning. Many big Asian cities, including Mumbai, Shanghai, Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City, and Jakarta are coastal and low-lying, making them susceptible to sea level rise and extreme weather events. So while Asia-Pacific's poorer communities contribute the least to greenhouse gas emissions, unfortunately, the people in these poor communities are the ones feeling the consequences of climate change the most.
0: Thank you. And while we don't have a quick fix to this issue, what can individuals do to help the cause personally and through their institutions? Christine?
2: I would like to say that we here in the United States have a substantive obligation, both personally and through our healthcare systems, to do what we can. As uh, Roselle just mentioned, many of the poor areas of the world are disproportionately burdened, and we've, uh, in the U.S., have contributed a lot to uh, greenhouse gas emissions through our, our lifestyles and our healthcare systems. We can individually and at our community level and through our institutions work in uh, several uh, different ways. For the individual, one can change to a different method of transportation that is not fossil fuel based, and uh, electric vehicles, transportation such as uh, subways even walking and bicycle riding would be good for your health and good for good for the planet uh, plastic use is out of control and so trying to eliminate single use plastics an initiative in our neighborhood is trying to do two things. One, get our garbage trucks to make fewer trips and convert from diesel to electric. And also, our yard services use a lot of uh, diesel equipment so you can do local change as well. Our healthcare systems in the US contribute 10% of the greenhouse gases. Uh, in the United States. This is a huge percentage. Th- this is a complex arena with both um, the plastic use in the hospitals, transportation to deliver. Th- Uh, equipment to the hospitals and patients and staff to the hospitals. Uh, Buildings are very energy intensive. And there are a number of things such as the anesthetic gases in the operating room that are also potent greenhouse gases. So we need to understand how these, um, how we can make our healthcare systems more sustainable? There is an excellent group called Healthcare Without Harm that has a Practice Green Health arm that has many ideas to help this. The Gunderson Clinic in La Crosse, Wisconsin, is one of the most sustainable uh, facilities in the United States, and they have a Gunderson Envision program that they're willing to share with uh, hospitals and healthcare systems, and practice green health can do the same thing. I I do want to draw attention to our Inflation Reduction Act that recently passed in the the United States. It's the most important climate change action the U.S. has ever taken. We're finally trying to make up for uh, our lost time. I do not think it's too late. I think we can make a lot of um, progress going forward. One thing the uh, Inflation Reduction Act has is a lot of tax credits for not-for-profit institutions. I think the uh, many healthcare systems are not-for-profit. And as they try to make their facilities more sustainable, the excuse of, oh, it's too expensive, has now been uh, ameliorated because there are approaches to that can you can use through the Inflation Reduction Act to decrease costs and renewable energy. Importantly, wind and solar, the costs have uh, plummeted, and so there are a lot of ways we can, both individually at the community level and at the healthcare system level, make change to lower our carbon footprint.
0: Thank you so much for providing little things we can do and big things that we can do. Roselle. what else would you like to add?
1: Yeah, I just definitely agree with what Christina shared, very important points there. And in addition, we have to consider also that we have to take those opportunities to capitalize on the health benefits of climate mitigating strategies. For example, if we are to consume more plant-based foods and less meat that will not only help the environment, but also keep us healthy. And we have to maximize green spaces. So in that way also, we are uh, helping the environment. And of course, what Christine has shared as well, that lessening the carbon footprint of healthcare industry, we have to uh, admit it that we are part of the problem. So huge steps are needed to help our environment. Thank you. Um, Something
0: that I would like to discuss with the two of you is, what are some of the actions that large societies like ASCO and ISLC are taking to fight climate change and improve awareness? Roselle?
1: Yeah, society, large societies like ASCO have a task force that perhaps uh, Christine can discuss more about this. But what, what is important in, in terms of the role of medical societies and oncology professionals is that we have to have for, for strong relationships with relevant organizations, government agencies, and other uh, non-government groups. In that way, we have to maintain and sustain active involvement in interagency planning efforts, including designing coordination protocols, integrated communication plan, as well as leveling up our oncology care when it comes to uh, uh, assessing or addressing changes in the climate. And health professionals, of course, can lead the, take a lead role in coordinating with other healthcare providers, uh, emergency physician staffs and those who are planning and responding to emergencies. We have to foster better training for healthcare providers and how to respond to the special needs of people with cancer if they are exposed to natural disasters. So, there are so many opportunities that oncology societies can help and be active stakeholders in mitigating the effects of climate change. Thank you, Roselle.
0: Christine. Uh, Where are some of the actions that these societies are taking?
2: The Roselle mentioned that the American Society of Clinical Oncology formed a task force, and that task force has drawn up a report with multiple recommendations that have been presented to the board of ASCO um, in August. And Eric Berniker, who spoke on an excellent podcast also on climate change with Joan Schiller in the spring, uh, chairs the task force. And what uh, he presented to a small group that I belong to, Oncologists United for Climate and Health, and if you want to learn more about it, send me an email, that our He's the chair of this task force that presented to ASCO there's going to be a policy document drafted by ASCO as to how the entire organization should get involved, what they should be doing. I mean, things like. Uh, education at various conferences is important. How can we work with our cancer centers to deliver sustainable and disaster-resistant res- uh, care? So. I, we don't know yet what the policy document is going to uh, actually advocate for it, as it's just in the process of uh, being drafted. But I think it's a very important step forward. And I'm very proud that ASCO, with with its global reach and the real impact climate change has on our cancer patients, has recognized the scope and severity of the problem, and is going to be advocating for action. And uh, ISLAC, I want to compliment also. There have been multiple efforts through your podcasts. We had uh, two environmental uh, sessions at this last World Congress on other causes of lung cancer, Uh, Dr. Guzman gave a great talk on climate change. So it's important that the word get out through the educational focus. We need more research on the impacts of climate change on our patients. We need more research on understanding how our care can be made more sustainable. And uh, ISLAC is working through their research um, efforts also to help with that. So there are quite a number of ongoing new efforts and I'm really proud to be part of ISLAC and ASCO as they move forward to help all of us.
0: Thank you. Um, We have patients and caregivers that listen to the podcast. If a person has already been diagnosed with lung cancer what can they do to improve the effects of climate change on them and their loved ones?
1: Rosal? Well, it's very important that the patients and their caregivers are aware of the impact of climate change, that having a lung cancer may be caused by these effects of changes on the earth. And what is what what us as oncology professionals do to improve the lives and the care for our patients should be should go hand in hand with caring also for our environment because it's really useless if we advocate for our patients to be better to get well receive the proper treatment if they are living on a sick planet. So it's very important that everybody will have a role in mitigating the effects of climate change.
0: Thank you, Roselle. Would you like to add something about what can patients wait long learn- when it comes to climate change?
2: Uh, I, I would like to just make two brief suggestions. One is that patients have disaster uh, plans in place so they know what to bring with them, where to get their care, and also healthcare providers need to do that too. Air quality can be monitored and our lung cancer patients can wear N95 masks when they're in regions, even on when they're on trips that uh, might make them um, breathing poor quality air. So N95 masks can be helpful.
0: Thank you. As we continue to move uh, over the subject, can you discuss with us some of the new research studies that focus on climate change and lung cancer? What is that there that's very incited down the pipeline? Rosal?
1: So for the latest evidence that came up, as I mentioned earlier, is the discovery of a pathway that's linking air pollution to the development of lung cancer among non-smokers. I'm not an active researcher um, doing um, prospective studies on climate change and its impact on lung cancer. Perhaps Christine can share her uh, work, but I think the discovery of that pathway on the The linking air pollution to lung cancer among non-smokers with EGFR mutations will open up several uh, studies, researches that will impact in the future the outcomes of patients.
0: Thank you. Christine, would you like to ask something about what is inciting down the pipeline?
2: I think what Roselle mentioned about this recent uh, work on mechanisms is really important. Understanding uh, where air pollution and tobacco uh, exposure interact is also very important because as we address the tobacco uh, epidemic, we need to bring the air pollutants down as well. My presentation last year at the World Congress showed Surprisingly, that the for- countries in the former Yugoslavia and Poland, where there's heavy coal use, have uh, issues. And so, it's not a lot of people think it's only the you know India, China, et cetera that are have problems. But it's everywhere, and we need to understand what's driving these issues locally. They need local and regional. Uh, work. And so I think um, epidemiologic studies on exposures is also critically important and is being done.
0: Thank you. And as we move almost to the end of this podcast, um, is there something about this very important subject that I haven't covered that you would like to discuss? I will start with Roselle, then followed by Christine.
1: Well, I believe we have a comprehensive discussion. and We have touched on so many significant points on the impact of climate change and natural disasters to our patients with lung cancer. But what I would share is perhaps a motivation for everybody to do our share. It may be small as we see it in in, an individual level, but if we come together and do our share, then that will help mitigate the impacts of climate change. Thank you, Roselle. Christine?
2: Yes, I agree with Roselle that we all need to contribute. And I want to share a hopeful projection. The worst of the projections from the IPCC, the, the highest level temperature projections by the end of the century are, are really imp- very, very highly improbable now due to changes uh, in our uh, coal usage primarily. So it, 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 we can make a difference and we n- need to um, step up and it, it we, ca- we are making a difference. And you know, the, the recent passage of legislation here in the U.S., actions by all of us, we can help avoid the worst. And it's really critically important that, you know, we're oncologists, we're used to dealing with complex situations, but you know, treatments have improved. And I think our approach to climate change is improving. This has been
0: such a wonderful conversation. Not only I have learned a lot from the two of you, motivated to continue to have the discussion. We are fellows, we trainees with my neighbors. So I appreciate the time and passion of our guests, Drs. Berg and De Guzman. Thank you for your time. And we look forward to continue learning from you. Thank you very much.
2: Yes, thank you very much as well.
0: Thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. And I hope that you will tune in on the first and third weeks of every month to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.